Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome to another Common Grounds Unity podcast. I am here with my co-host, Tina Bruner. Tina, how are you today? All well. In Kentucky, we have a little bit of uh, rain. We had snow last week, so, you know, it's springtime in uh, the Midwest. Getting that shift from winter to spring. Yes. Well, it's about the same here in Southern California as it was a month ago and two months ago, (laughs) 70 degrees and sunny, so... Good to We're be with you today. <laughs> I am I'm excited about our conversation today. We are in a series on our podcast based in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 at verse 3 where Solomon speaks of a time to tear down and a time to build. And in this particular conversation that we're going to be having this week and next, our guest is one who I believe in his recent book helps us to do both. Uh, maybe tear down is not a word he would use, but but to at least reframe and ret- return to um, what we'll call the blue hole. We'll describe that in just a couple of moments. Our guest is Jack Reese. I'm going to give him a, a longer introduction in just a moment, but he does thoughtfully and helpfully enable us to do both. His recent book, At the Blue Hole, Elegy for a Church on the Edge was released in 2021. It was released on Erdman's Publishing. So uh, by the book, I think it is one of the most important books um, out for conversations that need to be had in congregations, at least in the Church of, of my alignment, Churches of Christ, in this stream of the Stone Campbell movement. But I think it has relevance for all Stone Campbell movement congregations. In my view, It is essential reading for church leaders and more than leaders, members of congregations who have a love for and a deep concern for the future of Churches of Christ, International Church of Christ, and again, other congregations in this movement. And one of the things I'll add before I introduce Jack a bit more, you will not find this to be in any way a dry academic read. You'll not have to slog through this book. Jack is an excellent storyteller. And he blends the story so well with thoughts and insights and research that is going to move your mind and your heart in a good direction. Um, Your heart will be moved by this book. Not only will you be better informed about a path forward and more thoughtful as we think about the future together, you'll be inspired. It's a book that's sobering and honest. Jack kind of prescribes like a doctor who's... um, 
being very honest about a patient's condition and honest about the consequences of the choices that are in front of the patient. And here's the deal. He's not a, a detached writer in any way. This is his spiritual home and history and future as well. So he is in it along with the readers. He's both doctor and patient. So I love that about the book. Let me introduce Jack. Jack Reese currently serves as the executive minister of the Northside Church of Christ in San Antonio, Texas. Throughout his years and various roles, he served in uh, numerous congregations in church life and ministry, uh, but also in the academic world. He received a PhD from the University of Iowa School of Religion and served as a professor and dean of the College of Biblical Studies and Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University. He also served as president and CEO of the Foundation for Community Empowerment in Dallas, Texas, addressing issues of poverty and race. Uh, Other than this book, he's also the co-author of The Crux of the Matter, Crisis, Tradition, and the Future of Churches of Christ that he co-wrote with Jeff Childers and Doug Foster, a book that I've read a number of years back, and then The Body Broken, Embracing the Peace of Christ in a Fragmented Church. He's married to Lisa, who is a speech pathologist and a former professor at ACU, and they love cooking together, singing, traveling, and reading geeky social science books and also hosting friends in their home. Uh, They work with interfaith leaders in the San Antonio area. And Jack also serves as a consultant um, to churches, and he's got six adorable grandchildren he loves spending time with. Jack, welcome to Common Ground Unity. We're so glad to have you with us. Thank you much. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Tina. Uh, Greetings from San Antonio, the most beautiful city in North America. (laughs) Well, I want to echo what um, Kevin said. I am not a Church of Christ uh, pastor um, or from the Church of Christ stream of our movement, but this book was so powerful as, as someone who cares about the way the church presents itself to the world. Um, And especially in this season, maybe every there's all the time is the season, but where the world is really hurting and where the church really does have something to offer. If we could pray more and dispute less, if we could um, really see ourselves as I believe this book helps us um, just get our, like rekindle a love for the church. So Jack, thanks so much for being with us. And I do encourage everybody to read this and but when you start it, it's hard to stop. So pick a good time when you've got some time, uh, because it was hard for me to put it down. So, um, Jack at the blue hole, elegy for a church on the edge. It's a interesting and unique title. Can you tell us about the title and the reasons why you wrote this book? Sure. Of course, the book was started before the title was, was chosen. I had to find the the metaphor that that captured the things I was trying to to say. This this book was about ten years in in writing and and went through lots of different forms before it it, it came to the place that it is now. I mean, the premise is that churches are dying. <clears throat> All churches are dying. Churches of Christ, Christian churches, mainline churches, evangelical uh, evangelical churches, uh, churches churches are dying and we can talk about all that and talk about why and and what the opportunities are but i i also believe that 
congregations have resources that they don't always know they have. Um, one of the principles in, in the missional uh, literature or the missional conversation worldwide is that uh, there's no one-size-fits-all for, for a church. Every church has its own story and therefore has its own resources. So there are some resources to individual congregations and certainly to the stream of the Stone Campbell movement that churches have that could help us immensely in this time if we just knew about them. And so the metaphor that I've chosen is a San Antonio metaphor. Uh, there's a place uh, just north of downtown called the Blue Hole. It is the spring that is the beginning of the San Antonio River. It is what uh, nourishes uh, this uh, beautiful city and, and uh, a large area around it, including Austin and, and, and other places. Uh, but the source of that water is beneath the surface. Uh, this massive Edwards aquifer beneath the surface, um, and and the water comes bursting out of the blue hole. But if we don't take care of what's beneath the surface, if we don't remember the nourishing streams, uh, it won't matter what happens above ground because that river is going to run dry if the if the aquifer beneath it runs dry. So that's the, the metaphor that's that's at play. Um, I think the Stone Campbell movement has a blue hole. Um, I, I think the blue hole was a commitment to unity uh, early in the in the 19th century. And I think a lot of churches have forgotten its original source and has allowed the stream to dry up. And um, I think this is an opportunity before it's too late uh, to uh, replenish um, the stream of our churches. Jack, you uh, you used the term before, it's too late. One of the things I've experienced uh, in, in recent years in talking about the decline of churches is that uh, I think many of us have our kind of heads in the sand about what's happening and about the rate of decline. The, the book begins with an introduction by Wesley Granberg Michelson, where he he makes the statement that we as a fellowship, Churches of Christ specifically, with about a million members and attenders and 12,000 congregations, if we remain in, in our current status and at the same rate of decline as we currently are, we will get to a place where we'll be 250,000 in 2,800 congregations in 2050. Those are alarming uh, numbers. In the first chapter of the book, you write, it is resurrection that our churches are hoping for. It is resurrection that we need. We may think to ourselves, if only we could get past what's holding us back, whatever our crisis du jour may be, then things would be better. Then we could become the church we want to be. But here's the honest truth. If our churches keep doing what most of them are do now doing, they're going to die. And for some of them, that death will be slow and painful. And some of them will never recover. But here's the rest of it. If we don't die, there will be no resurrection. Make no mistake, there's going to be a death either way. While your primary audience seems to be the churches of Christ, these words likely resonate with the various streams of the Stone Campbell movement and to the broader Christian church. Can you speak about these thoughts of death and resurrection in these contexts? Sure. I, I think we should be 
frankly, more comfortable in talking about death than we are. There is no way to describe our faith apart from death, uh, Christ's death and our own. We, we need to come to grips with the whole death thing and not be afraid to, 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 to talk about it. And, and in that way, um, the things that I've attempted to write, while they have resonance within the Stone Campbell uh, movement in general and Churches of Christ specifically, uh, you know, that's just uh, almost a, a, an example of the kind of, of a dying that's taking place uh, all across uh, North America, across Europe, across the West, among churches of, of every stripe. Uh, rural or urban, uh, mainline or, or fundamentalist, uh, all, all churches in one way or another are in death throes. And some of that is simply about uh, coming to grips with the changes that have taken place over the last several decades in church life. Uh, our churches, for the most part, are getting smaller. They're getting older. Uh, there have been more uh, divisions. Uh, the, uh, the, the impact of that ill health is being seen uh, over and over again. The pandemic uh, just put the death spiral into, uh, uh, into uh, uh, you know, the fast lane, uh, put it on steroids. Uh, churches are closing their doors um, almost every week in, um, in this country. Um, my sense at the same time is that we're going to have to die one way or another. We will either die because of our inattention to the things that matter, because we will no longer relate to our culture, we will no longer be faithful to, to our, our Lord, and we're just going to become irrelevant and die, or we will have to participate in a community act of surrender and discipleship. We will have to take up a cross together. We'll have to die to doing things the way we used to do it, or the way we want to do it, or the way we like to do it, uh, in order to ever make it through. Uh, I think the other side could be could be extraordinary. I think God is up to something amazing. God has done this repeatedly throughout history. God's church will never die, but individual congregations uh, are going to continue to die uh, if if they uh, don't detach themselves from the way that they've uh, that they've uh, typically done things uh, over the years. This is a this is a crucial moment. Death can be brutal for some congregations. Um, it's been hard. It's painful. There's a lot of grief going on. But boy, um, resurrection can look mighty good. Uh, and God has something extraordinary uh, in view uh, for God's church throughout the world. This book tells stories, stories about key people and pivotal times within our shared heritage. These stories seem to be snapshots, moments in time when certain personalities reshaped or reframed our collective attitudes and our theology. 
so much so that we seem to have lost connection to the original vision of the founders. Can you speak to how this book is structured and why these stories are so important for us to hear and to hear now? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I'm sure you noticed that the book was not written in a in a linear fashion. The, the The book is more like a mosaic. There's a story here and a story there and a recent story and an ancient story and a personal story and someone else's story. And, and that was very conscious. Um, I, I, in part, it's it's uh, it's my style. In part, I think it it is. Uh, reflective of, of of our times, I want there to be a number of entry points for folks. And some of those are personal stories and some of those are historic stories and some of them are church stories and some of them are about statistics and all those things are there. But, but I, I didn't want to write a, a linear book. Uh, I, I wrote a book that that is a little quirkier than that, a little, a little uh, eccentric in, in some ways. It's part memoir, uh, it's part history, it's part a book about missional uh, values, uh, it's mostly a book about courageous leadership, uh, it's a call to action, a call to courage, um, the, the general um, storyline uh, has uh, three major inflection points, uh, chapters two, three, and four. Uh, chapter two is um, the story of uh, T.B. Larimore and his funeral in 1929, um, which was uh, symbolic of a of a a pivotal event, a move that Churches of Christ in the 20th century made that took Churches of Christ away from the original stream. Um, Churches of Christ thought they were going straight. They thought they were continuing in the stream they were on, but they, they took a detour. They took a road off. And that symbolized in, in the funeral of T.B. Laramore, the great peacemaker, um, who refused to condemn folks from the other side of the movement, refused to be judgmental and to condemn. The pallbearer for his funeral was Foy E. Wallace Jr. And Foy Wallace took the movement and reflects uh, a commitment of a movement for the next 75 years or so um, that was not about unity at all. So that's kind of the, the hinge story. And that was the choice that was made. Uh, the next inflection point, uh, chapter three, uh, is what I think is the blue hole. That is the, the union of uh, Stone uh, Churches and Campbell Churches in Kentucky, the, the uh, New Year's weekend, 1831, 1832. It's the story of, of Barton Stone and Raccoon John Smith. Uh, it's a story of Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell and the commitment to, to, to unity um, that, that should be the wellspring of churches in this tradition today. And then the third uh, major inflection point, uh, the story of chapter four, 
uh, took place in 1973 in September in a meeting uh, of some representatives of the Herald of Truth in Memphis, Lynn Anderson, the preacher of the Highland Church in Abilene, Landon Saunders and Harold Hazelip and Batsel Barrett Baxter representing Herald of Truth and what ended up being close to an inquisition. It was brutal. And it reflects this commitment to a type of restoration that does not allow, does not tolerate differences. It's reflective of a movement that started in freedom and uh, devolved into conformity. And so that represents that, that, that third piece. And so the, the stories adhere in one way or another uh, to those three uh, major uh, stories uh, before moving to what I hope are some more specific and practical suggestions in the last chapter about uh, the resources that we have at our disposal that can make us well again, that can make us better. I think that when we, um, when you're sharing about the stories and they seem like from a historical perspective, it's, it's not for history's sake. The thing that I love about it is it is a lens of looking forward. Can you just give a couple of examples or just share how you feel about the history that you shared and the way that you hope it informs us looking forward? Yeah, I, I hate how history is is seen uh, by so many. You know, history is that dry, boring stuff that you have to do to get out of the uh, the eighth grade, and you know, you don't want to have to ever take it again. Um, uh, we are what we are. Uh, we have the the strengths and dysfunctions that we have because of where we came from because of the people that came before us and the decisions that, uh, that, that were made. Um, and so uh, when, when uh, someone says to me, I appreciate this history book, I will say to them, this is not a book about history. This is a book that uses history to talk about uh, what's happening in churches today. Uh, so the history is, is, is more than informative. It functions in the same way that uh, a doctor uh, who who learns from a patient's history in order to help determine what's wrong, what normal is, uh, how health can be restored uh, again. And so I, I've worked really hard to, to weave uh, stories of history with stories of the present time and, and to ask the kinds of questions that a modern will ask about our churches that will find some resonance in those, in those historical stories and, yeah, there's some, there's some wonderful, there's some wonderful people there. You know, um, Selena Holman, um, um, uh, James Garfield, James Garfield, what an extraordinary man uh, he is. You know, but Selena uh, Holman, who was willing to disagree with David Lipscomb, and Lipscomb, who was willing to let her disagree in his journal, The Gospel Advocate, uh, even though he thought she was wrong. Uh, she had a right to speak and she had a right to believe and to say uh, what, what, what she said. There, there's some wonderful pieces of our um, combined history that we could learn a lot from today. Yeah, I would, I would say to anybody who has not read the book, you will learn uh, much about our history that perhaps you did not know, but, but you will learn it in a way 
that is different from reading a, a, a general restoration history book, as we've often read. Sometimes we glorify these individuals and you you make them feel real. Now, now when we talk about history, it's not just going back to you know, Stone and Campbell. You talk about people in the book that I've met and that I, I've known and that I've heard preach. You talk about T.B. Laramore, the, the church I preached for in San Diego for a number of years was founded by Laramore. When, when you took us back to Southern California, I could smell the orange trees and smell the breeze coming off the coast and imagine that funeral in Santa Ana. So for our listeners, you will learn good history, but in such an intriguing way in these stories. T- tell us a little bit, uh, Jack, I was intrigued by your trip back to Lexington. What, what took you back there and what were some of your emotions there? And, you know, tell our listeners just a little bit more, if you will, about that unity meeting. I think it's a part of our lost history that's not often discussed. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I, I had known of the, the this union of uh, Campbell and Stone churches for a, a long time, but it was it was a fact. It was just kind of a fact back there. Um, several years ago, I, I just got in the car and and I went to um, to some of the the historical sites. I went to to Bethany in West Virginia. Spent time in uh, the area just east of Cleveland, where uh, Garfield made uh, his home, and um, um, down to Hiram College, uh, where Garfield was uh, was was the president. And spent several days in in Lexington, uh, Kentucky, and and Georgetown. Um, you know, on the, on the weekend of, uh, New Year's, uh, 1831 to 32, uh, Stone's Church in Georgetown, which is essentially a suburb of Lexington, it's just a few miles, uh, outside, uh, and, uh, the Campbell Church in, um, uh, in Georgetown, they've been talking for months about what they shared uh, in common, and and they met at an old cotton mill that had just a few months before been uh, sanctified as a as a church, uh, as a as a Christian church. And of course, the names were interchangeable in those days. Christian churches, churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, they were all um, I- interchangeable. Uh, those churches uh, had profound differences. Stone and his churches and Campbell and his churches were more different in more areas of doctrine and practice than I think churches of Christ and Baptist churches are today. I mean, there were significant differences, but both both communities cared about, about unity. And I, I wanted to be there. I wanted to see the place. You know, there's no historical marker there. Um, the, the cotton, uh, the old cotton mill has been gone for, for a long time. Uh, there's now a, just a bank. There's a bank there. It's a, it's a parking lot for um, um, a drive-in uh, bank. Um, uh, just, uh, just down uh, the street from um, where uh, the University of Kentucky basketball uh, is played at, at Rupp Arena, which is a school that has its roots in the Stone Campbell uh, movement and there was something about walking out into that hot air, and even though uh, I could just smell the the exhaust from the cars going through the the, the, the drive-in uh, bank, 
there was, I've described it as, as a thin place in the universe, uh, just a few feet from where I was, one of the most profound events of the 19th century took place that had a direct impact on who I was and the kind of person I had become and the things I had come to believe. Um, and there was something about, you know, standing there and, and remembering those stories and the handshake between Raccoon John Smith and Barton Stone and the hugs that took place around the room uh, across those church boundaries of people that were committed to unity and and they broke into song. I wish I knew the song that they had sung. And then the next morning, New Year's Day, 1832, uh, these two very different churches and very different traditions took communion together as a people committed to communion would and shared the bread and the cup uh, together. And um, I'd like to be a part of a church like that. Hmm. I'd like to be a part of a church that's willing to not to overlook differences, but to address differences and to, and to disagree with one another and choose to be united anyway. Um, that's a, that's in our history. That's in our bloodstream. That's in our DNA. And, um, and I'd like to, to be a part of that kind of church. You mentioned in the, the thought process of bringing this book together, your discussions with Royce Money and, uh, and also with Doug Foster, who's been on our podcast, a good friend of yours there mm -hmm. at ACU, um, how you learned about Foy Wallace being the pallbearer at T.B. Larimore's funeral in that discussion. And that kind of was a mind-blowing piece of information. You know, as you're preparing for a book like this and kind of retracing so much of this history, our story, are, are there other things like that that just become these eureka experiences? Or are there things that... It just blew your mind in a similar way in, in just the whole process of preparation that you'd share? Yeah, in, in, in many ways, uh, that, that is the case. You know, for, for me, uh, knowing about T.B. Larimore, uh, Doug, uh, Doug Foster had done his doctoral dissertation uh, at uh, Vanderbilt on, on Larimore. I knew, I knew the stories uh uh, I lived at, in the day of uh, Foy Wallace. Uh, he was uh, uh, famous or infamous um, uh, in in my young adult days, but I had no idea what the connection was until Doug just made an offhanded statement uh, about uh, um, uh, Wallace being the pallbearer uh, at uh, at Larimore's funeral, and and it struck me even in the moment. Uh, uh, that's a whiplash that's that's just difficult to get one's mind around. Those are those are people of of, of quite different temperaments and and commitments, and one represented what Churches of Christ were, and one represented what Churches of Christ became. Hmm. Um, I mean, one of those moments for for me uh, was sitting down with uh, uh, Edward Robinson, who at the time was a faculty member at, at ACU and has written extensively on the history of 
African American uh, Churches of Christ, and 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 has uh, been written the definitive uh, book on uh, Samuel Robert Cassius, uh, which was also his uh, doctoral dissertation. And uh, oh, he discovered a, a number of things in in Cassius' uh, life, and and I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of him. Mm-hmm. This powerful black preacher. Uh, the most powerful witness in, in uh, Stone Campbell churches among the, the, the population of former slaves and freemen, and I'd never, I'd never uh, heard of him. His, his, um, his mother had been a slave. He was born into, into slavery. Um, yeah, there are some stories about the possibility of, of some kind of connection uh, even being related to Robert E. Lee. We don't know that. For sure, and and all those stories are like I, I had no idea, and then to see how mistreated he was by white churches. This would have been all the churches in the Stone Campbell movement because this was before Churches of Christ became a distinct movement. Uh, he was um, relegated to the margins, uh, ostracized. Uh, he worked hard not to be bitter, and yet his own son and children became you know prominent members of churches of christ in southern california through through the years um there are some there are some extraordinary stories of brave individuals who went through a lot uh, in order to show a light forward for a kind of church that that's healthier and more foresighted and visionary and alive than um I think many churches may be demonstrating uh, today. And, um, you know, Lynn Anderson is one of those mm-hmm. um, whom, whom you know and, and, and love and to whom this book is, is dedicated uh, because Lynn was that for many of us. And, uh, you know, the question then is who, who, who are um, the visionaries for a healthy community of faith uh, today? They're not going to be just men, I can tell you that. The, the 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 women uh the the non-whites the non-english speakers uh there, there is a future uh, ahead and it's the the power of of the resurgence is not likely frankly to come from from um america uh, that's no not where the force of of growth and and um and preaching is coming from it's coming now mostly from africa and from South America and from, from Asia, we're, we're, we're receiving missionaries now into North America from those kinds of, uh, of churches. Uh, I suspect that's where the future is going to come from. Um, and that's good news. Um, I'm, I'm not unhappy about that. I love that um, so much of, or even the way this book got started was through conversation. Mm. And it seems to me that that is something that we as believers have lost is that sense of sharing stories with each other, listening to one another. And, and even as you're, as you weave through the book, the ideas of when we disagree, it seems like now more than ever, when we disagree, we just disassociate. And so do you have any, I know that we're going to talk about on the next podcast, um, the resources from the blue hole, but is there anything that you'd like to just raise up as a encouragement to the church, us as believers in the area of 
being in relationship? Yeah, I think that's really the uh, the, the right question. Um, the history of uh, churches in the Stone Campbell movement, and we are not unique in this, is uh, is uh, is a history of divisiveness and and judgment. That's not our entire history. Um, but uh, for 20th century churches of Christ, uh, it was assumed through much of the 20th century that the only way that churches could be unified is if everyone agreed on all the main issues. And if you couldn't, you had to go your own way. And, and that's not the church um, of the first century. And it's not the, the, the church that, that God called us to be or that, that Christ longed for in, in, in his own last words in John 17 before his, his own death. It, it wasn't that he called his people to be in agreement. He called his people even in our disagreements to, to love each other. Um, conflict is not always a bad thing. Um, churches have to learn to, to live with, with conflict. We, we, can, we can, can have conflict over significant issues and still give up our lives for one another. Uh, we have a, a, an elderly couple in their 90s at, at our church, uh, here, um, they've been a part of uh, this congregation since the 1980s, and they do not like some of the things that our church now does. They do not. Uh, they've made very clear that there are some things they really do not like, and there have been people who have left because we don't like that. We don't like doing that. That's not what we think we should do, and. Um, this couple, these dear godly people, uh, have said as recently as um, last Sunday morning in a class that, that I've taught, you know, we don't like all the things we're doing, but this is our family and we're not going anywhere. Um, in a time when churches are falling apart in, in a culture that is highly polarized in, in which political parties uh, work to, to devour and destroy each other, in which the cultural wars are so hot that we can have hardly have conversations with anyone who have, have uh, disagreements with our own. The church has an opportunity to be a witness to the world that we can disagree profoundly on issues, political, cultural, theological, and love each other anyway. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's a that's a choice we can make. It is a God empowered choice. It is a a Christ driven uh, choice. It it is a spirit filled choice. It's a difficult choice. It's a painful choice. Um, but yeah, having conversations um, over coffee or in however way one can to have conversations by choice with people that we disagree with profoundly and die for them. And, and serve them and love them and lift them up and, and hold their hand and, and pray for them and call them and text them. And um, yeah, that's, that's what church um, can be. And, and at our best, at God's best in us, 
Um, we see glimpses of that um, in most of our churches today. That's our hope. That's our future. Jack, I don't know if there's any better way to end than, than with what you just said. As a matter of fact, I'm a little bit hopeful that people will take that part of this podcast and play it in their Bible classes and churches and let others think about what you have just described. And, you know, this is why we wanted to have you on the podcast. Your book resonates with us because I, I don't know that I've read a book in recent times that so, you know, beats in rhythm with the heart of Common Ground's unity, bringing a unity-minded people together and, and getting back to that blue hole that you described at Lexington. Um, I'm looking forward to next podcast. We're going to have Jack Reese back with us. Um, there, there's kind of an interesting blend. I, I hurt when I hear some of these things, but the only way to get better is to take that pain and to know that there's a possibility of healing. Um, your words are very hopeful, even though they're at times heartbreaking. Uh, and I hope it brings, I want to have the same optimism you have, great healing for the future and a better future. The book again is At the Blue Hole, Elegy for a Church on the Edge, published by Erdman's, released in 2021. Go online uh, wherever you buy your Christian books and look up Jack R. Reese at the Blue Hole. Get a copy. You'll be so glad that you did. Uh, Jack's going to be back with us for the next podcast. Uh, Tina, good to be with you today. Uh, we always say at the end of our podcast, unity starts with a cup of coffee. Go find another believer, uh, maybe that you've been estranged from, maybe that you've just never taken the time to get to know. Open up your heart and your ears and have a cup of coffee and share together. Join us again next podcast. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.